As we pray this morning, let me read from Isaiah. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, in order that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, and there will be none after me. I, even I, am the Lord. There is no Savior besides me. Father, we thank you that you are our Savior, the God who created us and the God who saved us. We're thankful as we come here this morning. Our purpose is to worship you. Our purpose is to fellowship in you. Our purpose is to understand your word and to grow in it. Oh Lord, I pray that we will be shaped by the word of God as it works on our human nature and, and changes us into a Christ-like nature. And Father, as we read the story of Boaz and Ruth and Naomi, certainly here we have truths that help us to understand you and to understand what it means to live for you uh, in, a, in a very succinct uh, way. Father, we commit ourselves to you for this day. We pray that as your word is proclaimed throughout this property this morning, in the services and in every class, that you will be uplifted and you will be glorified. We're thankful for your divine presence and for your love for us and your patience with us, Lord. And we ask you today to open our hearts and minds to hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'll turn to the second chapter of Ruth, I'd like to re uh, begin reading at the first verse. Now Naomi had a kinsman of her husband, a man of great wealth, of the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, Please let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after one in whose sight I may find favor. She said to her, Go, my daughter. So she departed and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. Now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, May the Lord be with you. And they said to him, May the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his servant, who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young girl is this? Young woman is this? And the servant in charge of the reapers answered and said, She is the young Moabite woman who returned with Naomi from the land of Moab. And she said, Please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. Thus she came and has remained from the morning until now. She's been sitting in the house for a little while. We began looking at this passage last week, and uh, we saw that as Ruth and Naomi came to the city of Bethlehem, According to the scripture, there's no mention of Naomi having kins, kinspeople here, but she probably did. Specifically in this passage, we're told that there were two kinsmen of her husband. And of course, one of them is the man named Boaz. And he, of course, will be the hero of the book of Ruth as we move through this particular chapter. We discovered last week that the word Boaz in Hebrew means alacrity. It means quickness. It means promptness. Somebody who's Johnny on the spot, I guess you could say. We, we noted that there is a tradition that he was probably a nephew of Elimelech, but we do not have scriptural support or necessarily definition of that. Boaz is introduced in the very first verse, which is important because obviously it sets the tone for the remaining chapter. We move quickly, uh, the author moves quickly at least, from the introduction of Boaz to the events that would lead to an encounter between Boaz and Ruth. 
As these two ladies had returned from the land of Moab, they were obviously in great need. They had both had lost their husbands, of course, and so they returned to the land uh, relatively impoverished as, as far as we know. They had little more than the clothes on their backs. Naomi probably had a house in Bethlehem. Most likely they had a house that they had left when they had gone off to the land of Moab. And of course they'd been in the land of Moab for 10 years. Had the house been sitting unused or had somebody been using it? We, we don't know. Did she have some land? Possibly she had some land. Again, the question was, what was Elimelech's occupation? You remember Elimelech went off to the land of Moab with his family, and, and did he become a sharecropper there in order to earn a living? Did he become a laborer? Uh, did he have a particular uh, profession? Was he an artisan of some sort? We don't know. It's possible that they had no land and that he lived in the town and had been an artisan. Th these are all things sort of left to us to wonder about. What we do know is that Naomi and Ruth had no means of providing for themselves. Certainly at first when they came to the, to the town, some of their friends uh, wined them and dined them and provided them with some food, but this wasn't going to be an ongoing thing. And as a result, uh, they had to turn to the welfare system of that day which God had established. I'd like for us to go back to Leviticus chapter 19. Leviticus chapter 19, reading at verse 9. Now when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very corners of your field. Neither shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest, nor shall you glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather the fallen fruit from your vineyard. You shall leave them for the needy and for the stranger. I am the Lord your God. It was very important for a method to be provided because you remember Jesus' words. He says, the poor you always have with you. There always will be poor. And so this system was established to provide for the poor and for the stranger, the person who's coming into the land and has no connections. And so the corners of the field were to be left and all the droppings of grain along the way as it was being harvested were to be left for the poor. And the same was the vineyard, the same were the olives and, and all of the different crops that were grown in that particular day. This was a very effective system it was, insist, it, was, it was a good system because it encouraged community within Israel. It, it encouraged people to take responsibility for each other. The person who owned land, who was obedient to God, was thinking of the poor when he left the corners of his field and when he allowed the grain to drop in the field and when he didn't pick up the fallen fruit and allowed certain... He, he wasn't supposed to, as we'll see in a minute when we read in Deuteronomy, he wasn't supposed to pick over his trees a second time. The first picking was to be it. This was a way of providing for the people and causing the people who had something to be responsible for his neighbor. Jesus told us that we are to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And this is an expression of that, loving your neighbor by allowing them to glean from your field. It also, of course, provided for the person doing the gleaning a measure of self-worth because they are working for what they're getting. They're, they're out gleaning, they're picking, they're harvesting, they're having to do what the actual farmer does for himself in order to provide. And it's not just a paycheck sent through the mail that they sit and you know, go down and, and cash and, and buy what they want. They have to actually labor for it. And so I think for, from at least these two perspectives, 
that God was providing for Israel a means of welfare that was good for the society, good for those that were in need and good for those who were helping those in need. Those who obeyed and did what God had said here with right attitudes, I think we're especially blessed by God. Let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 24. Deuteronomy 24, reading at verse 19. When you reap your harvest in your field and have forgotten a sheaf in the field, that's a bundled package of grain, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the alien, for the orphan, for the widow, in order that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive tree, you shall not go over the boughs a second time. It shall be for the alien, for the orphan, and for the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not go over it again. It shall be for the alien, for the orphan, and for the widow. And God says it's because I provided for you as you came out of Egypt. Because God says to Israel, when you came to the land of Canaan, it was a turnkey country. The, the vineyards were in, and the orchards were in, and the fields were planted, and the houses were here, and the walls were around the cities, and you just walked in and took over a land that was already operating. So you, in turn, are to minister to those in need in your society. And I will bless you, God said, as a result of you doing that in obedience. There's an antithesis of this, of what God commanded. And it's a parable that Jesus gave us in Luke chapter 12. Here you find, and of course you know the story well, of a man who is exactly the opposite of what was commanded here. Luke chapter 12, verse 13, and you'll notice the reward he gets. Luke 12, verse 13. And someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who appointed me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, Beware and be on guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. Is that ever a word that needs to be heard in America today? And he told them in a parable, saying, The land of a certain rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no place to store my crop? And he said, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool. This very night, your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So here we have the, the antitheses here. We have what God says is to be done, how the people are to be provided for. It was to be done with a, to quote uh, Veggie Tales, a happy heart. <laughs> it was to be done with a happy heart. You should willingly allow the land to be gleaned by those in need. And then on the other side, you have this man who's not willing to allow a single little grain to fall into anybody else's possession. He's going to store up every little bit of it for himself. After receiving permission from Naomi to glean in order to provide for their needs, Ruth went into the surrounding barley fields without any idea of whose field was whose. Naomi was undoubtedly too old and too weak to go out into the heat, 
labor all day beneath the sun in this backbreaking type of labor, and to experience the physical and verbal abuse which was commonly heaped upon people, even in those days, who were impoverished and were taking, availing themselves of the welfare system. Now, the abuse wouldn't necessarily be heaped on them by the landowner, but by the workers. We're working for a living, and we're getting paid. How come you're, you know, having to do this? Ruth volunteers to work for the both of them. She will work not just for herself, but for herself and for Naomi. And we have to realize that gleaning is not an easy task because you're just picking up the fallen little sprigs of grain that are that on the ground. It's going to take a long time to get much grain. And then as we notice, as we move on through the book, she has to not only gather it, she has to thrash it and, and, and bring it home, and then it has to be prepared and all those things. There's a lot of work involved. And simply providing for yourself would be difficult, and even more so with two people. What we discover here is a lady who clearly demonstrates a selfless attitude. And this is the attitude that begins to characterize those who are truly committed to God. It is not human nature to be selfless. Selflessness is a Christ-like attribute. Christ, we're told by Paul in Philippians chapter 2, emptied himself of his divinity in the sense of the power of his divinity, and he took on human form, and humbled himself in order to die on the cross. And Paul then exhorts us, through Philippians chapter 2, he says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. That is one of the most difficult statements in all of Scripture to make a reality. If, if, if we all could live by that, there would be no gossip, there would be no slander, there would be no backbiting, there would be no divorce, there would be none of these things that unfortunately even characterize the church much of today if we all lived according to this passage. Humility of mind. Most of us have collision with other people because of arrogance, not because of humility on part of one or the other or both. This is diametrically opposed to human nature. It can only come by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so as I think about this, it seems to me that selflessness becomes a measure of one's commitment to God. The degree to which the Holy Spirit indwells us manifests itself in the degree to which we are selfless. As I was reading this, uh, thinking about this, this uh, you probably saw this little article came out in the paper this past week called Good News About Evangelicals. Mm. Good news about evangelicals. They're more educated than they have been in the past. They're wealthier than they have been in the past. But it was the end of the article that really struck me. This trend towards a wealthier flock does raise some concerns. This comes from a uh, poll taken by the Barna Corporation. Barna notes that earlier polls he conducted showed that the increase in wealthy individuals isn't necessarily accompanied by changes in lifestyle. You don't see their lives changing as a result of the commitment they've made, he said. For many of these individuals, faith in Christ is simply a good deal. Faith in Christ represents an eternal insurance policy for them, 
rather than a significant change of heart about the ultimate meaning of life or how to honor Christ through their decisions, behavior, and resources. Yeah. And uh, as I think about that, I think that's missing the entire message of the Scripture. Uh, the, the message of the Scripture is not we just grab onto Christ for dear life and, and live like the devil, knowing that we're going to be okay because we've at some point in time uh, said, Jesus be my Savior. The, the whole point of Scripture, and you find it throughout the writings of Paul, and of course in the writings of James and others, and, and you see the theme throughout the whole Old Testament, and that is if we've committed ourselves to God, we reflect the reality of God to the world in which we live by our nature, by the changes that have occurred within us. And if we're no different from the world, I don't believe Christ lives in the heart of that person. That's really my, my strong belief. And, of course, all of us fail at one point or another. We do not, any of us, every moment and every day, uh, reflect Christ in all we do and all we say. But it should be at least the goal and, and what we're striving towards and, and what is becoming more and more characteristic of us as we walk with Him. Well, we're off on rabbit trails and we have our ups and downs, but there should be a general sense on the part of others that there's something different about you and about me if we claim to be Christians, if we can't claim to be the followers of Christ. So selflessness, where I am willing to give of myself for others, and where I consider others to be more important than myself. Ruth is a good example of this. Certainly she wasn't perfect. If you could have followed Ruth around day by day with your little video camera and you know, checked her out, you probably would have found moments when she just got irritated and, and when she lost her cool and a few other things. She was a human being. But the basic trend of her life is to give of herself. In Ruth, the second chapter, the third verse, we read that while gleaning, Ruth happened, and the Hebrew word there literally is chanced, to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz. So she's out there looking for a field in which to glean, and she just happens to come to Boaz's field. I think this has to be understood as tongue-in-cheek. There was no premeditation on Ruth's part. She didn't know where Boaz's field was. She probably didn't even really know much about Boaz other than what little Naomi had told her up to this moment in time. There were hundreds of fields around, uh, around Bethlehem scattered out into the distance there, and uh, she could have tried to glean in any one of them. But she was led by the Spirit of God because God intended to accomplish a special blessing in her life and the life of Naomi and the life of Boaz, and God was bringing it together. I believe that this is another example of the eminence of God, that He is here and that He works in our lives every day. It's very easy for us who are Americans because we have this long tradition of independence, you know, going out on the frontier and hacking out our own uh, 160 acres against the Indians and the elements and everything else, and I did it, you know, by my own strength. And moving away from the concept of community, which is what the church is all about. The church is a community, a koinonia, fellowship of believers, and understanding that God is in it, and God is at work at all the time, and God works in each of our lives individually, day by day. Sometimes we sense it, and sometimes we don't. Sometimes we just say, well, I just happened to be at the right place at the right time. No, you didn't. God worked this, works these things out, and we just happen to see it here in the case of Ruth. 
I mean, for her to actually walk by chance into Boaz Field, it would have been easier probably for her to win the lottery. Well, maybe not quite that bad, but almost. Anyway, but, but God led her, and she came to the right place because God was getting ready to put another link in his plan. I mean, his plan was already there, but I mean to fulfill another link in his plan of redemption. Now, it could take all day to, clean, to glean a very small field. Now, try to put yourself in the place. You're down on your... You're squatting down, you're leaning over your hands and knees, however you can do it. Depends on what degree you're arthritic, I suppose. But you're down there and you're trying to pick up pieces of grain that have fallen on the ground and collecting them in, in your little bag or your cloth or what is dragging this thing along and trying to collect this on. It doesn't take a very big field to look like a very long distance if you're going to try to glean this thing knee stroke by knee stroke, you know, down the field, trying to glean um, uh, the field. So, how did God get her to the right field so quickly? She may have tried to glean in other fields to start with. We don't know. The answer seems to be found in the request that Ruth made to Naomi in the second verse where she said, Please let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after one in whose sight I may find favor. She already is thinking about finding favor in somebody's so that she can carry out this gleaning without being tortured along the way by the people involved. Now, the law of Moses, as we have read, required landowners to leave gleanings and to allow the poor to glean. But there certainly were those, like the rich man in Jesus' parable that we read about in Luke 12, who wanted every single grain to themselves. Greedy people such as those would tell their foreman, drive off the poor. I don't want anybody gleaning in my field or simply deny them permission. In his commentary on Ruth, uh, the uh, Old Testament scholar Delich writes, hard-hearted farmers and reapers threw obstacles in the way of the poor and even forbade their gleaning altogether. Hence, Ruth proposed to glean after him who should generously allow it. I think this illustrates a measure of faith. She is thinking, God will open a door for me. He cares for me. He cares for Naomi. I know he cares for Naomi, and I hope he cares for me, whatever was her attitude. I'm going to go out there, and God is going to give me favor with someone so that I can glean in the field. Now, she's gleaning from probably virtually the light of day when the workers first get out there to glean. And working on through, through, through the morning here, uh, gleaning from this field. And did Boaz then just happen to come from Bethlehem to check on the progress of the harvest and the welfare of, her worker, of his workers while Ruth was gleaning in the field? He didn't necessarily come every day to check on the field. I mean, he may. I don't think so. I think God led him out at the appropriate time so that God could bring to this man's attention this young lady. Now, Boaz was not a lecherous old man, so how did he happen to notice this young lady out in the field? And why did he care enough to ask about her? I mean, certainly he'd seen gleaners before. Was she unusual in some way? Or was it simply God put it in his mind, hmm, who's this lady over here? I think that he noticed her and cared about her 
is illustrative of the kind of man Boaz was. Notice how he greeted his workers. He said, may the Lord be with you. In effect, he's saying shalom to these people. Yahweh bless you, my workers. Now, you know, such a thing could be said flippantly, but I don't think it was said flippantly by Boaz. I think he used this as a proclaimed blessing upon his workers. I think he was a man who believed that he could proclaim blessing onto his people in the power of God with real meaning. And I think it illustrates that he was a true man of God. Notice how his workers respond to him, muttering under their breath, you jerk. No, no. That's not what they say at all. They say, may the Lord bless you. Well, they'd say it very Jewishly, of course. <laughs> Probably not. Because what we think of Jewish today is, is mostly, of course, from uh, the Ashkenazium, which didn't exist in those days. John, you know, the thought just occurred to me as you're talking about God's sovereignty and all of These are the exact same fields where the shepherds were tending their sheep the night that the Messiah was announced. Yeah. And some of you I know have been in those fields, and you probably have seen the caves out there where they would, uh, the men at least, would stay at night when it was kind of cold. Uh, very interesting area. Actually, when you go to Bethlehem today and you uh, look out around, you say, uh, well, I don't know as I'd want any fields out here. <laughs> it looks pretty barren out here. It looks like a desert. But I think we need to understand that Israel today does not appear as Israel did 3,000 years ago. 3,000 years ago, Scripture tells us it was a land which flowed with milk and honey, which th th those were euphemisms for a land that was blessed of God. There was adequate rain, there was forest there, and of course you go today and they've replanted some forests and they're trying to grow some trees, but it's still a pretty barren land. And when you look at the wilderness of Judea, uh, you, you wonder how David kept his sanity if he was out chasing sheep around in that place, because it's like chasing them around the Mojave, uh, only worse. <laughs> Aren't any many bushes? Uh, speak of out there. A lot of rocks, though, so he got a lot of practice with his slingshot. <laughs> Didn't run out of ammunition, that's for sure. I think they said, may the Lord bless you, because they honestly respected this man Boaz. They knew they had a boss who was better than most of the bosses. They had a man who demonstrated godliness by not exploiting them. And, of course, we see this as we go on in the chapter and into the next chapter. He, he provides food for them. He provides water for them. He provides a shelter for them to get out of the, shade, uh, out of the sun part of the time. It's called the house in here. It's actually a shed of some sort. I, I mean, he was a good boss. When Boaz saw Ruth, he asked his foreman who she was. Only notice how he phrased the question. He says, whose young woman is this? Whose young woman is this? In that society, in that day, every woman belonged to some man. She belonged to her husband. She belonged to her father. She belonged to her uncle. She belonged to her brother. She belonged to someone because if she didn't, she was considered to be a harlot. His foreman's answer made it clear that Ruth had obtained permission. She didn't just sneak into the field and start gleaning. She had asked permission if she could glean in the field. And he gave her permission to glean in the field because he knew that's what Boaz would want him to do. Now, if he'd had, you know, a, a boss like the guy in Luke chapter 12, he would have told her to buzz off because he'd get in trouble if he let her glean. But he had allowed her to glean in the field. What we discover here is that he knew who she was. 
He had asked enough about her to actually know who this person was. And that she had been working, he, he notes that she had been working since the morning. The implication is from the beginning of the day, from, from as soon as we began to work, probably just after sunrise. What this implies is, of course, is that Boaz is coming out about, about noontime. And he says, and she's only been briefly sitting over there in the shade. Don't, don't, you know, don't look at this as if she's just been sitting over there all this time. She's only been briefly over there in the shade. I think his commentary on the diligence of Ruth indicates that the, for, that the foreman had taken careful note of the fact that this was a hard-working woman. And I think in his mind he was thinking, if I tell Boaz how hard a worker she is, maybe he will hire her as part of my crew, and I'll have another good worker. But of course, God's intent in this whole thing was that she might find favor in the eyes of Boaz. Well, let's read on at verse 8. Then Boaz, this is Ruth 2, verse 8. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Listen carefully, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field. Furthermore, do not go on from this one, but stay here with my maids. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap, and go after them. Indeed, I have commanded the servants not to touch you. When you are thirsty, go to the water jars and drink from, the, from what the servants draw. She fell, then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your sight, that you should take notice of me, since I'm a foreigner? And Boaz answered and said to her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband has been fully reported to me, how you left your father and your mother and the land of your birth and came to a people that you did not know previously. May the Lord reward your work, and your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have comforted me and indeed have spoken kindly to your maidservant, though I am not like one of your maidservants. Boaz already knew who this woman was. Now, he didn't know her by sight, but he knew of, of Ruth. And he knew that she had been caring for his kinsman his kinsman's wife, uh, Elimelech's wife, Naomi. And so he had compassion on her. Now, let me just say to you, it is, it is not common in ancient society for people to have, who have wealth to have compassion on people who do not have wealth. It just is not common. And it's not terribly common today either, or at any time in history. But particularly not in the time we're talking about, particularly since she was not even an Israelite. She was a Moabite, and they knew it. She was a foreigner. Xenophobia is not just something that exists in America. Hatred of foreigners is something that exists throughout cultures of the world and throughout time. He did not send his foreman. Notice he doesn't send his foreman to give her a message. He instead walks across the field himself to speak directly to her, indicating the kind of man he was. He had respect for this woman, although he was a wealthy, remember we read back in the first verse that he was a man of great wealth, and yet he took note of this woman who had nothing, and he went to speak to her himself. He addresses her, my daughter, which has, of course, no, no implication here of a relationship. 
He is simply acknowledging the age difference between himself and her. He was literally old enough to be her father. He gave her some fatherly instruction also. He said to her, glean only in my field and follow my maids. Follow the women who are working in my field and stick close to them. Now this is how it worked. The men on the crew wielded the sickle or the scythe and cut the grain and they walked ahead of the women. The women followed along, greater in number of course, because they had to gather the grain together into sheaves and then they had to bind or twine the grain together and put it down in little bundles. Later it would then be collected on a cart and taken for threshing. And so here the men are swinging through the field and the women are following along behind and they're doing the binding of the gathering and the binding of the sheaves. She was to remain right behind the women who were doing the, making the sheaves because that's, of course, where the dropping would occur. You know, you're trying to gather the grain together and you're hurrying along because these guys are hacking this stuff down. You can't dilly-dally around. If you've ever worked on any kind of a... Uh, manufacturing belt. You know what it's like <laughs> to get behind. <laughs> My wife, many years ago, when we were Simpson, worked at uh, Seas Candy in the packing plant. And many of the kids at Simpson did it in those days. And, and that's where you take the candy, you put them in those little wax cups, and you stick them in the box, and you're responsible for, I don't know, how many pieces did you have to do at a time? Well, I could do one. You could do one. <laughs> <laughs> And, and, you know, you have to thumb off the little cup and put the candy and put it in its right place, thumb off the cup candy and put it in its place, and these boxes are going... <laughs> Pretty soon you're... Doo, doo. <laughs> no, you only, put, you, only eat, you only eat them for maybe a day. After that, you're... There was an I Love Lucy. Was there? Some of the people who worked down there, they usually had the gals working on the line because they were more coordinated, I guess. With <laughs> and we supplied them with the candy from the stacks. But, you know, sitting there, and you're, this belt is moving in front of your eyes all the time. This stuff is moving across in front of your eyes. And some guy really sick <laughs> watching this thing going in front of your eyes, you know, pretty soon. Woo. But, you know, you just, and, and so here these guys are whacking down this grain, and you're trying to sheave it. And as a result, you're probably not gathering every little grain, and they were falling all around, and that was fine. That's the gleaning. That was for the poor. And, and that was understood. And that's what, or what Ruth was to do. And she was to follow close behind the women that were doing the sheaving, and she was to glean in relative security. This was for her protection. She was an unattached, solitary young woman and a foreigner. She would have been an easy target for attack. And it was well known that the workers were not uh, uh, against attacking such a person out in the field, of course, sexually and otherwise. And so Boaz informed Ruth that he had instructed the men, keep your hands off this woman. Which, of course, Im implied that not all of Boaz's workers were exactly dedicated men of God, probably. And he understood this. And Implied in this was also they were to refrain from verbal abuse, which was probably even worse for, for many such women. Particularly since she was a Moabitess, and Israel had no particular love for Moabites, given, of course, the whole story of the book of Judges and the problems they had there with the Moabites. And so this is the scenario. So Ruth, 
Ruth is now coming close to the maids afterwards. She's gleaning as they move along. She has permission to do this. And then on top of that, as we read on in the passage, we discover he gives her certain other privileges. And they cause her to just literally fall at his feet and say, why, why are you doing this for me? I'm a privileged woman. And of course, his response is that she has been serving Naomi. This is the least he can do for someone who is so selflessly giving of herself for his kinsman's wife. We'll pick up there next week.